Hi guys, it's Emily Joan Elliott here with Alice Drager. She is going to be reading an article titled, Who Really Benefited from the Center City Bonds Refinancing, which will be published on our website tomorrow morning, Thursday, and we're doing this recording Wednesday afternoon. And following Alice's reading, we'll do a Q&A on some of the biggest issues surrounding the bond refinancing. So I'll let you take it away, Alice. Thanks, Emily. In the latest turn in the tale of East Lansing's Center City District deal, an analysis by Eli of the paperwork for the refinancing of the bonds which closed last week shows a mysterious removal of all references to a key financial obligation of the developers. The implications are big. And though the city announced that these refinancing bonds would save about $2.3 million in property tax revenues that would otherwise go back to pay the bonds, the reality appears otherwise. In fact, following careful analysis of material released only after the closing, it appears that the bondholders' refinancing of the 2017 bonds didn't do the city of East Lansing any favors. Instead, with this refinancing, the bondholder did the Center City District developers a big favor. That fact takes on special meaning when you dig into the corporations involved, as Eli has been doing, and recognize this. The bondholder is a company owned by Peter Paul Bell. The lead developer who benefited from this refinancing is Mark Bell, Peter Paul Bell's son. So who did the bondholders' refinancing really benefit? His own family. This week, with yet another of the Center City District deals financial protections for the city seeming to fall away, former, Mark, former Mayor Mark Meadows is saying that enough is enough and that, quote, injunctive relief should be sought, unquote. Meadows is suggesting that it's time for one or more citizens of East Lansing to ask a court to issue a declaratory judgment to require adherence to the financial protections for the city that Meadows and the rest of the 2017 City Council built into this $125 million public-private deal. Meadows says this because time and again, the current council, city staff, and Brownfield Redevelopment Authority have not acted to defend those protections. Last Tuesday, December 1st, representatives of East Lansing's Brownfield Redevelopment Authority, or BRA, signed paperwork that closed the refinancing deal on the 2017 Center City District bonds. They agreed to issue about $29.5 million in refinancing bonds because they were advised by paid external consultants that this refinance, structured by those consultants, was in the best interest of the cities. On the surface, it certainly looked like that was true. The BRA was short $2.4 million for the payment it owed on December 1st to the bondholder for the 2017 bonds, and defaulting on a bond payment could be bad for the BRA's and the City of East Lansing's credit ratings. The external consultant warned of, quote, considerable headline and reputational risk, unquote, if the BRA didn't take the refinancing terms offered by the bondholder. In October, city staff had put out a call for a new bond investor, but presumably recognizing this deal as hairy, one mired in disputes, the 70 companies asked to consider investing in refinancing bonds all rebuffed the city of East Lansing. So with no other bond investors willing to touch this, it seemed a good thing that the existing bondholder agreed to refinance the bonds himself, rolling the $2.4 million shortfall into the new bonds. He even offered the East Lansing BRA a lowered rate in the process. Perhaps most importantly, the financial consultant hired to analyze the deal said that under the proposed refinancing, the new bonds would save about $2.3 million in tax revenues compared to the existing 2017 bonds. That's essentially money that would be retained by the taxing authorities, the East Lansing City, Ingham County, CADA, etc., instead of being used to pay interest to a bondholder. This sounded like a no-brainer in terms of the public interest, and so representatives of East Lansing's BRA signed off. 
but the financial analysis provided by the external consultants to the BRA before the closing appears to have totally ignored the fact that the 2017 deal included an unusual provision for the bonds, one that was incredibly valuable to the city, the developer debt service guarantee. To explain what happened here, we have to step back a moment and explain how the 2017 bonds were structured. The 2017 bonds were created as a way to pay for the public infrastructure in the Center City District deal, chiefly the new parking garage in Albert Avenue. The idea was that the city would sell about $24.4 million in bonds to investors and promise to pay back the investors with 5% interest using taxes captured from the new private development at Center City. That's Newman Lofts and a landmark. This was all done in a Brownfield tax increment financing TIF deal. The project's real estate developers were Harbor Bay Real Estate, whose CEO is Mark Bell, and Balline Management. They were operating together under a limited liability company called HBBM. To limit risk to the city of East Lansing in this deal, the 2017 City Council and the BRA made sure that the 2017 Center City District bonds were issued as no-recourse revenue bonds. The only thing the city and the BRA put up as security for the bonds was 30 years of future tax revenues from this project. If there was ultimately not enough in tax revenue from this project to pay back the bondholder over 30 years, the bondholder would just be out of luck. The bond investors couldn't come after any other asset of the city's. As it turned out, even in 2017, no one would sign up for such a risky deal at a relatively low interest rate. No one, that is, except someone who really wanted to get this project done. It had to be someone who thought there was enough money to be made otherwise in this redevelopment deal to make buying a risky 5% no-recourse revenue bond worth it. So it fell to Mark Bell's father, Peter Paul Bell, operating a Scottsdale Capital to put up the money for the 2017 bonds to make his son's East Lansing project happen. Without Peter Paul Bell's investment in the original bonds, Mark Bell's project here would have died. In order to push as much of the financial risk as possible onto the developers, Mark Meadows, who was mayor in 2017, arranged a second level of security for these bonds, the Developer Debt Service Guarantee. The guarantee said that if there hadn't been enough taxes captured from the new development to make a given payment due to the bondholder, any shortfall in that payment would be made up by the developers, HBBM. This meant, in effect, that if a payment came due and there wasn't enough to pay back Peter Paul Bell's company what was due, Mark Bell's company would have to write a check to make up for the gap in what was owed. As Eli specifically detailed in October, this developer debt service guarantee was inscribed in the Master Development Agreement. It was also inscribed in the 2017 trust indenture for the bonds and also in the term sheet letter for the bonds. The Bells, as both bondholders and developers, agreed to this guarantee. For three years, from 2017 to 20, no payment was due by the BRA to the bondholder Scottsdale Capital, according to the way the bonds had been structured. The interest on the bonds simply accrued. The first payment of about $3.7 million was always scheduled to be paid on December 1st, 2020. But as December 1st, 2020 approached, it became clear that the BRA had only collected about $1.3 million in new taxes. The project was completed relatively recently, so it hadn't produced much in new taxes yet. Although the original plan had been to stash extra money in a debt service reserve fund for the bond account to avoid any chance of payment default, as it turned out, Peter Paul Bell hadn't put up millions of dollars extra in the 2017 bonds as insurance against the shortfall in 2020. All that left this shortfall of about $2.4 million for the December 1st, 2020 payment due by the BRA to Peter Paul Bell's company. 
You might think, heading towards December 1st, knowing there was a shortfall looming, city staff would have let Mark Bell's company, HBBM, know that it was going to have to send a check for about $2.4 million to the bonds trustee under the developer debt service guarantee to make sure there was going to be enough in the bank to make that payment due. Instead, the BRA was advised by staff that it had to refinance or it would be in default. That turned out to be not really true. Later in November 2020, bond counsel Bill Danhoff of Miller Canfield admitted that the 2017 bond trust indenture says there is no legal default of this bond so long as the BRA is turning over what taxes have been collected. But in September 2020, the BRA members were pressed to vote to refinance under the claim from city staff that they were going to face default otherwise. And on September 24th, they did just that. They voted through a resolution to pursue this refinance. Nevertheless, the understanding at that point in September 2020 was that a refinance would not happen if the refinancing terms weren't in the best interests of the BRA and the city. A financial advisor, a company called PFM, was hired to tackle that best interests question about possible refinancing options. The decision to hire PFM is worth explaining. Before PFM came on the scene back in July 2020, the BRA had heard from another financial advisor that refinancing of the bonds was definitely in the BRA's best interests. That advisor was Brian Leffler of Robert W. Baird & Company. At the July 9th meeting of the BRA this year, Leffler used a simple chart that made refinancing look like it was absolutely in the BRA's best interest. In fact, the chart presented by Leffler was so simplistic as to be almost meaningless, but the starkness of the chart's message seemed persuasive to the BRA. They voted to refinance them. Just after that July 9th vote to refinance, Eli reported that when Leffler was giving that advice to the BRA before the BRA voted, Leffler didn't make clear that he was really working for the developers. Our reporting about that meeting caused turmoil and led Mark Bell to launch a PR attack against Eli. A week later, in spite of Mark Bell's back-channel pleading for refinancing, the BRA rescinded the refinance bonding resolution, and they voted to get themselves a financial advisor for themselves before they took another step. A few weeks later, the BRA hired PFM to be the BRA's own advisors. PFM agreed to a fee of $47,500 to be paid only if the BRA closed on the refinancing bonds, perversely creating an incentive for PFM to recommend refinancing because otherwise they wouldn't get paid. PFM then turned around and recommended the BRA also pay Leffler to help with the refinancing. In the end, PFM was paid $47,500 out of the new bonds for advising the BRA, and Leffler was also paid an additional $47,500 for, quote, restructuring expense, unquote, of the new bonds. So let's talk about that restructuring and the curious analysis given to the BRA officers. Based on what the city has said about the refinancing bonds, the claim that the new bonds would save about $2.3 million in taxes over their lifetime compared to leaving the 2017 bonds alone appears to have been very significant to the decision to agree to issue and sell the new bonds to Peter Paul Bell's companies under the new terms recommended. But here's the thing. The schedule on which the alleged savings of $2.3 million is calculated, an attachment called Appendix A, does not appear to be based on the real structuring of the original bonds. In the first line of the calculation, PFM shows a whopping big payment of about $4.3 million to the bondholder by the BRA in 2020-21. That's not what really would have happened if the 2017 bonds had not been refinanced. The truth is that the BRA is short $2.4 million for the first payment and may well have been short for the next payment, too. 
That means that under the developer debt service guarantee, if the bonds hadn't been refinanced, at least $2.4 million of that $4.3 million shown in line one of Appendix A would have actually been paid by the developers, not from captured taxes. What's critical to understand at this juncture is just how bizarre and valuable the developer debt service guarantee really was. Not only did it require the developers to make up any shortfalls when payments were due, it did not require the BRA to pay any interest to the developers for the money they put up under the guarantee. And it did not require the BRA to pay the developers back until the bonds were completely paid off, and then only if there was enough tax money left under the tax capture TIF plan. The result of the guarantee was that, if made now, the developer's $2.4 million shortfall patch would not have to be paid back by the BRA for as many as 27 years, and even then with no interest. Because of inflation, by the time the BRA paid back that shortfall patch, $2.4 million would be worth far, far less than it is today. A $2.4 million interest-free loan from the developers to the BRA paid back in 27 years would be worth over $5 million in today's dollars. There would have been additional payment shortfalls in the future on these bonds, too, making the guarantee terrifically valuable to the BRA over the life of the bonds. Yet, instead of calculating for the cost of the 2017 bonds by including the huge financial benefit of the developer debt service guarantee, Appendix A appears to assume that the guarantee didn't exist, and the BRA has all the money it needs to make the payments. The result of doing it this way is to cause a huge payout by the BRA in the first year, when a dollar is worth a lot more, relatively, skewing the whole apparent cost of the 2017 bonds to the BRA. In short, the way that PFM ran the analysis makes the 2017 bonds look much more expensive than they really would have been. This makes the 2020 bonds look like they saved $2.3 million. A footnote to Appendix A suggests that the calculation given for the 2017 bonds is quote-unquote conservative, but the opposite effect actually appears to have occurred by ignoring the developer debt service guarantee. Even if the developers defaulted on their obligation, even if they didn't make the payments due under the guarantee, Appendix A appears to be misleading. That's because in the event the developers didn't pay, the BRA would push off the amount owed now into later years when taxes accrued to be able to make those payments when a dollar would be worth relatively less. In sum, it appears that the way the 2017 bonds were calculated in Appendix A assumed wrongly that the BRA had the money to make the full payment that was due on December 1st, 2020. Appendix A also appears to have pretended the developer debt service guarantee didn't exist. It was not a reality-based analysis of the 2017 bonds. But it was what caused the BRA officers to think that they could save $2.3 million in tax revenues by accepting this refinancing offer. Now comes the kicker. We've already seen how the refinance meant that the developer didn't have to pony up now $2.4 million that would only be paid back in something like 27 years with no interest and only if there was enough taxes left in the deal. What's more significant is that the refinance bonds paperwork also completely removed all mention of the developer debt service guarantee. PFM's material simply makes no mention of it. Troublingly, There is also no mention of the guarantee in the 2020 trust indenture, the critical legal paperwork for the 2020 bonds prepared by bond counsel Bill Danhoff of Miller Canfield. While one might wonder if PFM knew about the guarantee, it seems very likely Leffler knew of it, and Danhoff surely knew about it. Danhoff prepared the 2017 trust indenture that had the guarantee in it. 
Moreover, just three weeks before the refinancing bonds closed on December 1st, Councilmember Lisa Babcock called Danhoff to Council to ask him questions about the bonds, including about the developer debt service guarantee. At the meeting on November 10th, 2020, Danhoff unequivocally acknowledged the existence of the guarantee. In this clip, you can hear Lisa Babcock asking the question and Danoff responding. So there's a developer debt service guarantee, often with bonds, <laughs> I thought. Um, what was that? And I'll, I'll just stop asking because I'm not even sure what to ask. Well, the development agreement provided, I believe that the indenture should provide that any bond shortfall had to be paid for by the developer. Oh, okay. Um, so that, but uh, where, you know, again, the bond purchaser has not indicated that they are looking to that guarantee. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not, I, I don't think the authority is going to do that, you know, unless the bond, bond purchaser wants it um, or, or directs them to do it or, you know, otherwise it's just, a, it, it sits out there. I mean, I, I don't know how good it is. We, we didn't opine it. I don't think anybody opined on it. But, uh, you know, it, yes, it's there in, in, in some form. Note that Danhoff suggested that the BRA would not seek to get the $2.4 million gap money out of the developer because the bondholder hadn't specifically asked the BRA to do it. The truth is the BRA never needed Peter Paul Bell's permission to ask Mark Bell's company to pay up under the developer debt service guarantee. Importantly, PFM, Danhoff, and the BRA's representatives who signed the refinancing do not appear to have had the legal right to eliminate the developer debt service guarantee from the new bonds. The guarantee was part of the 2017 Master Development Agreement voted on by City Council and the BRA, and there's been no vote to change that element of the agreement. PFM's Nate Watson, Baird's Brian Leffler, and Miller Canfield's Bill Danhoff have not responded to Eli's messages from last Friday presenting our analysis of the paperwork and asking for explanations about what happened. City Manager George Lahanis, BRA Chair Peter Dewan, and BRA Vice Chair Jim Krim have also not responded. On council, only Ron Bacon and Mayor Pro Tem Jesse Gregg have answered. Bacon simply replied, no comment. Greg answered by saying that while she agrees that the removal of the guarantee was a gift to the developers, she believes that the no-recourse nature of the bond ultimately protects the city. She also said she trusts PFM's interpretation and that the city was, quote, allowed under the terms, unquote, of the development agreement to refinance bonds. But Mark Meadows thinks more should be done. Finding Greg's understanding of the matter frustratingly shallow that's his words, and seeing that the current city council, city staff, and BRA are making no moves to defend the original protections built into the 2017 deal, former Mayor Mark Meadows told Eli by email on Monday that he believes it's time for court action. Meadows is frustrated by what he sees as the disregard for the developer's debt service guarantee in the refinancing, but he's also troubled by the current BRA's and current city council's failure to recognize and defend a $6 million reduction in the total tax capture voted through unanimously by the June by the 2017 council on June 20th 2017 and he's frustrated by this council's recent 4 to 1 vote to let the developer continue to rent to people under age 55 at Newman Lofts contrary to the deal that was made in 2017 Lisa Babcock was in the minority in wanting to hold the developer accountable for that age restriction Meadows who resigned from council in the midst of all of this 
is now suggesting that one or more citizens could, quote, seek a declaratory judgment, unquote, from a court with regard to the 2017 deal, determining, quote, that those limitations and responsibilities still exist, and the relief would be that the city, the BRA, and the developer would have to abide by them. So thank you for doing that reading, Alice. I was wondering if you could just provide, like, in summary, what you found were the most important changes between 2017 and 2020 for the bond deals. Really, I think the most important change is the elimination or the apparent elimination of the developer debt service guarantee. That is an incredibly valuable provision, and I'm really quite stunned to find that it's not there. And Meadows, when I talked to him, was quite stunned as well. But another important difference, I think, is... um, the, the interest rate is lowered. So the interest rate dropped from 5% to an average of about 42 or 4.3%. But because the bonds now extend out another 30 years, and um, because they're at a greater amount, you can simply assume that a lower interest rate means a better deal. And as I said in the article, you really have to understand that the way you have to run these numbers is reflective of the actual deal that was made, not just simply the length of the bond, the interest rate, and the amount of the bond. That's not enough to understand it. Right. So we know that the city opted to refinance the bonds, but did they have other options available to them? Yes, the city could have simply not refinanced. The city was not required to refinance. Um, according to the trust in Denver, it just had to take un- it had to take necessary measures to attempt it. And the city did that. It did attempt to refinance the bonds. It went out and sought 70 investors, all of whom said, no, thanks. Right. <laughs> it fulfilled its obligation to the bondholder by attempting to do a refinance. It did not have to accept the terms offered by the bondholder. Nothing required them to accept the terms. Okay. So my follow-up is the city doesn't refinance in this alternate reality. Then what happens? What should have happened at that point is that the city should have asked HBBM, the developers, to make up the payment gap under the developer debt service guarantee, which would have been about $2.4 million. That money would have gone into the trust account, and that would have been used to pay the bondholder. Mm-hmm. And that would have kept happening every time that there was a gap. And we would have simply paid the bonds off over the course of the total 30 years of the bonds. So a question I have is, Why does the city not have advisors, financial advisors, and legal advisors available at all times for development deals? So they kind of do in terms of the legal side. They have various law firms on essentially on retainer or at at arm's reach. In this deal, they paid PFM to be the financial advisor specifically. In the 2017 deal, when they made the original bonds, they had no financial advisor. I thought, because Brian Leffler was in the room at that time and giving lots of advice, that he was actually giving advice to the city. But it was when the bonds closed that I got the closing sheet, which tells you who got paid what. And it indicated that Leffler had been paid for the developer's side. He was advising the developers. And so I asked city manager George Lahanis this October why he had no financial advisor in the room when the bonds were originally issued. And his answer was basically that they were pretty simple and we didn't need one, which in retrospect seems like an incredible thing to say. We had Miller Canfield as our legal advisors then. They prepared the 2017 bond Mm -hmm. trust indenture, which had the developer debt service guarantee in it. They were also our advisor this time around, which um, 
some people think is more problematic because they've been defending uh, issues that have come up that really came up because of the way that they prepared these um, bonds. But Miller Canfield got paid $120,000 out of the new bonds to do the legal work for the city. What didn't happen in this case, and I've been reporting on this, is that a lot of people have felt that the city really ought to, or the BRA ought to have a new set of legal eyes on this thing to really look at what Miller Canfield has done because of all the problematic points that we've been pointing out. But the city and the BRA have opted not to spend the money to do that. And that's part of the issue. Um, as one person in the business said to me, East Lansing will step over a quarter uh, sorry, we'll step over a dollar to save a quarter. In other words, Eli is penny wise, pound foolish, that it would make a lot more sense to pay good advisors to advise us whether or not the bonds close, because you don't want to accidentally incentivize an advisor to convince you to buy something, right? Right. And that we should probably have a second group of legal eyes on this stuff. And one option would be to have Foster Swift do it, who's now the city attorney. They certainly have people qualified to do this kind of work. Thank you. Um, So you had said in your article how different entities didn't have the right to remove the guarantee. Can you explain a little about why they don't have that right and how they might be able to, how they could have taken a different path to do that to remove the guarantee? Sure. So Meadows is pointing to three aspects of the deal right now that um, city council, either through inaction or through action, have essentially changed, but without properly actually changing the agreements. So in 2017, one of the things that the city council wrote very clearly into the deal, and all of the parties agreed to it, that was the Downtown Development Authority, the DDA, the BRA, the city council, and the developers, and the bondholders in terms of the bonds, agreed to is that Newman Lofts would have restriction to people aged 55 and up. And city council recently took that four to one vote basically to allow the developers to get away with for another 60 days, not in fact adhering to that rule. Um, But much more significant are the two things related to the bonds. One that Meadows has pointed out repeatedly is that city council on June 20th, 2017 voted through a limitation on the tax capture to about $50.2 million dollars. Dan Hoff of Miller Canfield has been claiming steadily that the real number is $56 million, which appears in the TIF plan. But Meadows has been absolutely insisting council limited it, in fact, to $50 million. So there's a $6 million gap that Dan Hoff just proceeds forward and the BRA has been proceeding forward and the city council basically has been proceeding forward, assuming the 56 is the real number. One of the things Meadows says is that, no, council voted through a tax limitation of $50.2 million and you have to adhere to that or you have to change the agreement. But the current city council has not changed the agreement. They're just acting as if it really says 56. And they're doing so on the advice of Danhoff, but that is one of those places where people feel that we really should get another set of legal eyes because it looks like Danhoff is kind of defending himself by having not made all the paperwork appropriately match up. And then the third big one is this issue of uh, the developer debt service guarantee. That was put into the master development agreement. That was put into the trust indenture. Basically, if you wanted to change that, if city council or the BRA wanted to ignore that, you'd have to change the master development agreement. This is a many page long, it's about 270 pages long, I think, agreement that has that in it. They'd have to do a new vote. They'd have to go in and do an amendment to the contract. And they haven't done that. So that's very problematic. Sure. And my last question for you is, Mark Meadows and kind of the series of articles we've had in the last few months 
has a lot of ideas of what other people should be doing, whether it's city council or the citizens of East Lansing. And truth be told, when I read these articles, I just imagine him as deep throat. Like, because it's about a parking garage, too. I just see him standing in the shadows of the empty parking garage, whispering information to you. Although I know that's not how uh, he actually relays information. It's by phone and email, but okay, yes. That's just the image I have of him, though, is like in a trench coat. But... uh, (laughs) Is there anything he could be doing? Because he's laid out very well what other people's options are. Yes, he could could absolutely come forward. He could absolutely come forward to the meetings. And I asked him that question. He didn't respond to that question. Why doesn't he just come forward to the meetings and speak to these things? Um, You're right. He's been slipping notes to a lot of people besides me about the way the deal was actually structured. And why doesn't he come forward? So one of the things we have to remember is that the BRA voted through the original refinancing uh, resolution on July 9th. Uh, Eli made a stink about what had happened at that meeting. The BRA was set to rescind the resolution on July 15th at noon, and uh, about mm, a little more than 12 hours before that, I guess it was more like 16 hours before that, Mark Meadows resigned from city council. So the night before the BRA withdrew the first bonding resolution, Meadows resigned. He didn't mention this deal at all in his resignation. What he said is he was unhappy with the way that the city council majority, which was Aaron Stevens and Lisa Babcock and Jesse Gregg, had gone about firing city attorney Tom Yaden. Ruth Beyer, who was mayor at the time, also resigned at that moment. So that took, Meadows took himself out of the picture in terms of being able to sit on these meetings. But that said, he absolutely can come forward in public comment. He absolutely can write formal um, letters to the city council of the BRA and ask that they be part of the public record. And he's chosen not to do that. When I've asked other people why they think that's happening, they suggest that because Meadows is a lawyer with a lot of experience in politics, and he knows pretty well that this is headed for, he probably knows that this is probably headed for regulators. Um, that regulators are probably at some point going to become extremely interested in what happened with all of this. And once they show up, there's going to be um, potentially not just that, but potentially also lawsuits, and there's going to be depositions and all sorts of uh, accusations made all over the place. So I think he's being lawyerly, frankly, and he's being careful about who he says what to. So you're right. It does have this feel of like he's lurking in the shadows, tossing me notes. (laughs) Right. I should make clear, I don't accept anything anybody tells me. I look everything up, I check everything, and I double check everything. And when we're doing a story like this, I call people who know what the hell they're doing, and I say, check my work for me. And that's part of why I wrote to PFM and Miller Canfield and Leffler and said, here's my analysis, let me know where I'm wrong. And they haven't responded to that. Because, you know, I want to make sure that I have it right. And that's why it's taken us a long time to bring this story forward, about a week, because I've tried to make sure that I've got it right. Yes, Alice has her bond people, as she says, when she's on the phone and can't speak. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason, by the way, that those people can't just come forward and discuss this with their names is because, you know, they have professional lives. It's the same reason why the Washington Post constantly tells us that, you know, sources in the White House who cannot be named say X, Y, or Z, because people have complicated professional relationships and talking to reporters can be highly risky for them. And certainly coming out and saying that, you know, this group or that group presented information that's problematic or interpreted things in a problematic way is dangerous for them. 
Um, it's only, you know, it's less dangerous for us because we're the press, but also because I check everything. As Emily knows, yeah. I get pretty <laughs> obsessive about fact checking. If I'm wrong, we'll publish a correction. But so far, I don't think we're wrong in this analysis. I think we're absolutely right. Yes, I think people have expressed annoyance, but no one has said where we're wrong. Well, the people have expressed annoyance, we should make clear, is Harbor Bay Real Estate. (laughs) (laughs) That they launched an elaborate attack on Eli and specifically on me um, in the middle of all of this in an attempt, I think, to shut us up. And, well, that didn't work, right? Um, We proceed forward. In fact, I mean, I, I think the number one rule of journalism is that if you're on an interesting story and a source tries to shut you up, you pay more attention. And that's how Eli's <laughs> taken that approach, because there must be something ever more interesting. And in this case, that has certainly been true. It's been getting ever more interesting. All right. Well, that's all I had question-wise for you, Alice, unless you feel that we missed something that their listener should know. No, I think that's good, Emily. I mean, we appreciate that um, our readers and our listeners are willing to get into the weeds with us on this stuff. This is not an area of expertise for any of the people on the Eli reporting staff, but we really feel it is super important to bring these things forward. I'm constantly reminded that in 2017, when when Bill Danhoff of Miller Canfield was advising the city council on this deal, one of the things he said is that when these things default, you never hear about it because it's too complicated for reporters to cover. <laughs> and so every now and then I go back to that videotape and laugh. He, he's not wrong that it's really, really hard to cover this stuff. And Emily knows that I've reworked this draft a thousand times to try to turn it into English without losing the nuances that are important to capture. So yes, I was the stand in of the average reader who wouldn't know all the technicalities and constantly is like, well, I don't who's doing what? What does this word mean? So it's gone through many, many phases of change. And she's done a great job with the editing. So let me just remind folks, if this is the kind of level of reporting you want for East Lansing, if you want Eli to be here, nobody else is going to do this kind of reporting. Nobody. So eastlansinginfo.news slash donate. All right. Thanks, Alice. Thanks, Emily. 